Chapter Fifteen of The Bent Twig by Dorothy Canfield. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Fifteen. Mrs. Draper blows the coals. The most brilliant of these couples were Germain Fisk Jr. and Eleanor Hubert. The first was the son of the well-known and distinguished Colonel Germain Fisk, one of the trustees of the university, ex-senator from the state. He belonged to the old, free-handed, speech-making type of American statesmen, and, with his florid good looks, his great stature, his loud, resonant, challenging voice, and his picturesque reputation for highly successful double-dealing, he was one of the most talked-of men in the state, despite his advanced years. His enemies, who were not few, said that the shrewdest action of his surpassingly shrewd life had been his voluntary retirement from the Senate and from political activities at the first low murmur heralding the muck-raking cyclone, which was to devastate public life as men of his type understood it. But every inhabitant of the state, including his enemies, took an odd pride in his fiercely debonair defiance to old age, in his grandiloquent, too-fluent public addresses, and in the manner in which, despite his dubious private reputation, he held open to him, by sheer will-power, sanctimonious doors which were closed to other less robust bad examples to youth. This typical specimen of an American class now passing away had sent his son to the state university instead of to an expensive eastern college because of his carefully avowed attitude of bluff acceptance of a place among the plain people of the region the presence of germain jr in the classrooms of the state university had been capital for many a swelling phrase on his father's part what's good enough for the farmers boys of my state is good enough for my boy etc etc as far as the young man in question was concerned, he certainly showed no signs whatever of feeling himself sacrificed for his father's advantage, and apparently considered that a leisurely sojourn for seven years, he took both the B.A. and the three-year law course, in a city the size of La Chance, was by no means a hardship for a young man in the best of health, provided with ample funds, and never questioned as to the disposition of his time he had had at first a reputation for dissipation which together with his prowess on the football field had made him as much talked of on the campus as his father in the state but during his later years those spent in law school he had as the college phrase ran taken it out in being swagger had discarded his former shady associates had two rooms in the finest frat house on the campus, and was the only student of the university to drive two horses tandem to a high, red-wheeled dog-cart. His fine physique and reputation for quick assertion of his rights saved him from the occasional taunt of dandyism, which would have been flung at any other student indulging in so unusual a freak of fashion. During Sylvia's freshman year, there usually sat beside him on the lofty seat of this equipage a sweet-faced gentle-browed young lady the lovely flower blooming out of the little girl who had so innocently asked her mother some ten years ago what was a drunken reinhardt 
The oldest daughter of the professor of European history was almost precisely Sylvia's age, but now, when Sylvia was laboring over her books in the very beginning of her college life, Eleanor Hubert was a finished product, a graduate of an exclusive, expensive girls' boarding school in New York, and a that year's debutante and la chance society. Her name was constantly in the items of the society columns. She wore the most profusely varied costumes, and she drove about the campus swaying like a lily beside the wealthiest undergraduate. Sylvia's mind was naturally too alert and vigorous, and now too thoroughly awakened to intellectual interests, not to seize with interest on the subjects she studied that year, but enjoy as much as she tried to do, and did, this tonic mental discipline. There were many moments when the sight of Eleanor Hubert made her wonder if, after all, higher mathematics and history were of any real value. During this wretched year of stifled unhappiness, she not only studied with extreme concentration, but, with a healthy instinct, spent a great deal of time in the gymnasium. It was a delight to her to be able to swim in the winter time. She organized the first water polo team among the co-eds, and she began to learn fencing from the commandant of the university battalion. He had been a crack with the foils at West Point, and never ceased trying to arouse in an interest in what seemed to him the only rational form of exercise. But fencing, at that time, had no intercollegiate vogue, and of all the young men and women at the State University, Sylvia alone took up his standing offer of free instruction to anyone who cared to give the time to learn. And even Sylvia took up fencing primarily because it promised to give her one more occupation, left her less time for loneliness. As it turned out, however, these lessons proved far more to her than a temporary anodyne. They brought her a positive pleasure. She delighted the dumpy little captain with her aptness, and he took the greatest pains in his instruction. Before the end of her freshman year, she twice succeeded in getting through his guard and landing a thrust on his well-rounded figure. And though to keep down her conceit, he told her that he must be losing, along with his slenderness, some of his youthful agility, he confessed to his wife that teaching Miss Marshall was the best fun he had had in years. The girl was as quick as a cat, and had a natural-born fencer's wrist. During the summer vacation, she kept up her practice with her father, who remembered enough of his early training in Paris to be more than a match for her, and in the autumn of her sophomore year, at the annual gymnasium exhibition, she gave with the commandant a public bout with the foils in which she notably distinguished herself. The astonished and long-continued applause for this new feature of the exhibition was a draught of nectar to her embittered young heart, but she acknowledged it with not the slightest sign of pleasure, showing an impassive face as she stood by the portly captain slim and tall and young and haughty, joining him in a sweeping, ceremonious salute with her foil to the enthusiastic audience, and turning on her heel with a brusqueness as military as his own, to march firmly with high-held head beside him back to the ranks of blue-bloomered girls who stood watching her. The younger girls in Alpha Kappa and Sigma Beta were seizing this opportunity to renew an old quarrel with their elders in the fraternities, and were acrimoniously hoping that the older ones were quite satisfied with their loss of a brilliant member. 
These accusations met with no ready answer from the somewhat crestfallen elders, whose only defense was the entire unexpectedness of the way in which Sylvia was distinguishing herself. Who ever heard before of a girl doing anything remarkable in athletics? And, anyhow, now in her sophomore year it was too late to do anything. A girl so notoriously proud would certainly not consider a tardy invitation, and it would not do to run the risk of being refused. It is not too much to say that to have overheard a conversation like this would have changed the course of Sylvia's development, but of such colloquies she could know nothing, attributing to the fraternities with all an outsider's resentful overestimation of their importance an arrogant solidarity of opinion and firmness of purpose which they were very far from possessing professor and mrs marshall and lawrence and judith up in the front row of chairs set for the audience about the running track followed this exploit of sylvia's with naively open pride and sympathy applauding even more heartily than did their neighbors lawrence as usual began to compose a poem the first line of which ran splendid she wields her gleaming sword the most immediate result of this first public success of sylvia's was the call paid to mrs marshall on the day following by mrs draper the wife of the professor of greek although there had never been any formal social intercourse between the two ladies they had for a good many years met each other casually on the campus and mrs draper with the extremely graceful manner of assurance which was her especial accomplishment made it seem quite natural that she should call to congratulate sylvia's mother on the girl's skill and beauty as shown in her prowess on the evening before mrs marshall prided herself on her undeceived view of life but she was as ready to hear praise of her spirited and talented daughter as any other mother and quite melted to mrs draper although her observations from afar of the other woman's career in la chance had never before inclined her to tolerance so that when mrs draper rose to go and asked casually if sylvia couldn't run in at five that afternoon to have a cup of tea at her house with a very few of her favorites among the young people mrs marshall rather inflexible by nature and quite unused to the subtleties of social intercourse found herself unable to retreat quickly enough from her reflected tone of cordiality to refuse the invitation for her daughter when sylvia came back to lunch she was vastly fluttered and pleased by the invitation and as she ate her mind leapt from one possible sartorial combination to another whatever she wore must be exactly right to be worthy of such a hostess for mrs draper was a conspicuous figure in faculty society she had acquired through years of extremely intelligent maneuvering a reputation for choice exclusiveness which was accepted even in the most venerable of the old families of la chance those whose founders had built their log huts there as long as fifty years before in faculty circles she occupied a unique position envied and feared and admired and distrusted and copiously gossiped about by the faculty ladies who accepted with eagerness any invitations to entertainments in her small aesthetic and perfectly appointed house she was envied even by women with much more than her income for of course professor draper had an independent income 
it was hardly possible to be anybody unless one belonged to that minority of the faculty families with resources beyond the salary granted by the state faculty ladies were however not favored with a great number of invitations to mrs draper's select and amusing teas and dinners as that lady had a great fancy for surrounding herself with youth meaning for the most part naturally enough masculine youth with an unerring and practiced eye she picked out from each class the few young men who were to her purpose and proclaiming with the most express lack of reticence the forty-three years which she by no means looked she took these chosen few under a wing frankly maternal giving them in the course of an intimate acquaintance with her and the dim and twilight ways of her house and life an enlightening experience of a civilization which she herself said with a humorous appreciation of her own value quite made over the young unlicked cubs this statement of her influence on most of the young men drawn into her circle was perhaps not much exaggerated from time to time she also admitted into this charmed circle a young girl or two though almost never one of the university girls of whom she made the jolliest possible fun her favorites were the daughters of good lachance families who at seventeen had finished at miss holmes select school for young ladies and who came out in society not later than eighteen she seemed able as long as she cared to do it to exercise as irresistible a fascination over these youthful members of her own sex as over the older masculine undergraduates of the university they copied their friends hats and neckwear and shoes and her mannerisms of speech were miserable if she neglected them for a day furiously jealous of each other and raised to the seventh heaven by attention from her just at present the only girl admitted frequently to mrs draper's intimacy was eleanor hubert on the day following the gymnasium exhibition when sylvia promptly at five entered the picturesque vine-covered draper house she found it occupied by none of the usual habitues of the place the white-capped black-garbed maid who opened the door to the girl held aside for her a pair of heavy brown velvet portieres which veiled the entrance to the drawing-room the utter silence of this servitor seemed portentous and inhuman to the young guest unused to the polite convention that servants cast no shadow and do not exist save when serving their superiors she found herself in a room as unlike any she had ever seen as though she had stepped into a new planet the light here was as yellow as gold and came from a great many candles which in sconces and candelabra stood about the room their oblong yellow flame as steady in the breathless quiet of the air as though they burned in a vault underground there was not a book in the room except one in a yellow cover lying beside a box of candy on the mantelpiece but every ledge table projection or shelf was covered with small queerly fashioned dully gleaming objects of ivory or silver or brass or carved wood or porcelain the mistress of the room now came in she was in a loose garment of smoke-brown chiffon held in place occasionally about her luxuriously rounded figure by a heavy cord of brown silk she advanced to sylvia with both hands outstretched 
and took the girl's slim, rather hard young fingers in the softest of melting palms. "'Aren't you a dear to be so exactly on time?' she exclaimed. Sylvia was a little surprised. She had thought it axiomatic that people kept their appointments promptly. "'Oh, I'm always on time,' she answered simply. Mrs. Draper laughed and pulled her down on the sofa. "'You clear-eyed young Diana, you won't allow me even an instant's illusion that you were eager to come to see me.' "'Oh, yes, I was,' said Sylvia hastily, fearing that she might have said something rude. Mrs. Draper laughed again and gave the hand she still held a squeeze. "'You're adorable. That's what you are.' She exploded this point-blank charge in Sylvia's face with nonchalant ease, and went on with another. "'Jerry Fisk is quite right about you. I suppose you know that you're here today so that Jerry can meet you.' As there was obviously not the faintest possibility of Sylvia's having heard this, save through her present informant, she could only look what she felt, very much at a loss and rather blank, with a heightened color. Mrs. Draper eyed her with an intentness at variance with the lightness of her tone, as she continued, I do think Jerry'd have burned up in one flare like a torch, if he couldn't have seen you at once. After you'd fenced and disappeared again into that stupid crowd of graceless girls, he kept track of you every minute with his opera glasses, and kept saying, She's a goddess! Good Lord, how she carries herself! It was rather hard on poor Eleanor right there beside him, but I don't blame him. Eleanor's a sweet thing, but she'd be sugar and water compared to champagne if she stood up by you. For a good many months, Sylvia had been craving praise with a starved appetite, and though she found this downpour of it rather drenching, she could not sufficiently collect herself to make the conventional, decent pretense that it was unwelcome. She flushed deeply, and looked at her hostess with dazzled eyes. Mrs. Draper affected to see in her silence a blankness as to the subject of the talk, and interrupted the flow of personalities to cry out, with a pretense of horror, "'You don't mean to say you don't know who Jerry Fisk is?' Sylvia, as unused as her mother to conversational traps, fell into this one with an eager promptness. "'Oh, yes, indeed, I know him by sight very well,' she said, and stopped, flushing again at a significant laugh from Mrs. Draper. "'I mean,' she went on with dignity, "'that Mr. Fisk has always been so prominent in college football, and all, you know, and his father being one of our state senators so long, I suppose everybody on the campus knows him by sight.' Mrs. Draper patted the girl's shoulder propitiatingly. Yes, yes, of course, she added. He's ever so good-looking, don't you think? Like a great Viking with his yellow hair and bright blue eyes? I never noticed his eyes, said Sylvia stiffly, suspicious of ridicule in the air. Well, you'll have a chance to this afternoon, answered her hostess, for he's the only other person who's to be admitted to the house. I had a great time excusing myself to Eleanor, she was coming to take me out driving, but of course it wouldn't do, for her own sake, the poor darling, to have her here today. Sylvia thought she could not have rightly understood the significance of this speech, and looked uncomfortable. Mrs. Draper said, Oh, you needn't mind cutting Eleanor out. 
She's only a dear baby who can't feel anything very deeply. It's Mama Hubert who's so mad about catching Jerry. Since she's heard he's to have the Fisk estate at Mercerton as soon as he graduates from law school, she's like a wild creature. If Eleanor weren't the most unconscious little bait that ever hung on a hook, Jerry'd have turned away in disgust long ago. He may not be so very acute, but Mama Hubert and her maneuvers are not millstones for seeing through. The doorbell rang, one long and one short tap. That's Jerry's ring, said Mrs. Draper composedly, as though she had been speaking of her husband. In an instant, the heavy portieres were flung back by a vigorous arm, and a very tall, broad-shouldered, clean-shaven young man in a well-tailored brown suit stepped in. He accosted his hostess with easy assurance, but went through his introduction to Sylvia in a rather awkward silence. "'Now we'll have tea,' said Mrs. Draper at once, pressing a button. In a moment, a maid brought in a tray shining with silver and porcelain, set it down on the table in front of Mrs. Draper, and then wheeled in a little circular table with shelves, a glorified addition in gleaming mahogany of the homely, white-painted wheeled tray of Sylvia's home. On the shelves was a large assortment of delicate small cakes and paper-thin sandwiches. While she poured out the amber-colored tea into the translucent cups, Mrs. Draper kept up with the newcomer a lively monologue of personalities, in which Sylvia, for very ignorance of the people involved, could take no part. She sat silent, watching with concentration the two people before her, the singularly handsome man, certainly the handsomest man she had ever seen, and the far from handsome but singularly alluring woman who faced him, making such a display of her two good points, her rich figure and her fine dark eyes, that for an instant the rest of her person seemed non-existent. "'How do you like your tea, dear?' the mistress of the house brought her stranded guest back into the current of talk with this well-worn hook. "'Oh, it doesn't make any difference,' said Sylvia, who, as it happened, did not like the taste of tea. "'You really ought to have it, nectar, with whipped ambrosia on top.' Mrs. Draper troweled this statement on with a dashing smear, saving Sylvia from being forced to answer by adding lightly to the man, "'Is ambrosia anything that will whip, do you suppose?' "'Never heard of it before,' he answered, breaking his silence with a carefree absence of shame at his confession of ignorance. "'Sounds like one of those labels on a soda-water fountain that nobody ever samples.' Mrs. Draper made a humorously exaggerated gesture of despair and turned to Sylvia. "'Well, it's just as well, my dear, that you should know at the very beginning what a perfect monster of illiteracy he is. You needn't expect anything from him but his stupid good looks.' and money and fascination. Otherwise, he's a caveman for ignorance. You must take him in hand. She turned back to the man. Sylvia, you know, is as clever as she is beautiful. She had the highest rank but three in her class last year. Sylvia was overcome with astonishment by the knowledge of a fact which had seemed to make no impression on the world of the year before. Why, how could you know that? She cried. Mrs. Draper laughed. Just hear her, she appealed to the young man. Her method of promoting the acquaintance of the two young people seemed to consist in talking to each 
of the other. Just hear her. She converses as she fences, one bright flash, and you're skewered against the wall. No parrying's possible. She faced Sylvia again. Why, my dear, in answer to your rapier-like question, I must simply confess that this morning, being much struck with Jerry's being struck with you, I went over to the registrar's office and looked you up. I know that you passed supremely well in mathematics and French. What a quaint combination! Very well indeed in history and chemistry, and moderately in botany. What's the matter with botany? I have always found Professor Cross a very obliging little man. He doesn't make me see any sense to botany, explained Sylvia, taking the question seriously. I don't seem to get hold of any real reason for studying it at all. What difference does it make if a bush is a hawthorn or not? And anyhow, I know it's a hawthorn without studying botany. The young man spoke for himself now, with a keen relish of Sylvia's words. He faced her for the first time. "'Now you're shouting, Miss Marshall,' he said. "'That's the most sensible thing I ever heard said. "'That's just what I always felt about the whole B.A. course, anyhow. "'What's the diff? "'Who cares whether Charlemagne lived in 600 or 1600? "'It all happened before we were born. "'What's it all to us?' "'Sylvia looked squarely at him, "'a little startled at his directly addressing her, "'not hearing a word of what he said "'in the vividness of her first-hand impression of his personality, his brilliant blue eyes, his full, very red lips, his boldly handsome face and carriage, his air of confidence. In spite of his verbal agreement with her opinion, his look crossed hers dashingly like a challenge, a novelty in the amicable harmony which had been the tradition of her life. She felt that tradition to be not without its monotony, and her young blood warmed she gazed back at him, silently, wonderingly, frankly, with her radiantly sensuous youth in the first splendor of its opening. With this frank, direct look, she had a moment of brilliance to make the eyes of age shade themselves as against a dazzling brightness. The eyes of the man opposite her were not those of age. They rested on her, roused, kindling to heat. His head went up like a stag's. She felt a momentary hot throb of excitement, as though her body were one great fiddle-string, twanging under a vigorously plucking thumb. It was thrilling, it was startling, it was not altogether pleasant. The corners of her sensitive mouth twitched uncertainly. Mrs. Draper, observing from under her down-drooped lids the silent passage between the two, murmured amusedly to herself, "'Ah, now you're shouting!' my children. End of chapter 15